Hey, y'all, I'm going to take a second to give a quick shout out to the official mortgage lender of the Hunt Lift Eat podcast. That's Casey Burns of Prime Lending Mortgage. I've known Casey for 10 years and he's the only lender I use. I've used Casey to purchase two houses and the process has been seamless and easy each time. He's the heart of an educator and he truly cares about what's best for his clients. He specializes in VA loans, but can handle FHA, conventional investment loans as well. He's a true expert and specialist in his field, and there's no one I recommend more than Casey. You can contact Casey at casey.burns at primelending.com. Reach him by phone at 919-710-1864. You can also check out all his reviews at www.closewithcasey.com. Thanks, y'all. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Hunt, Lift, Eat podcast. My name's Carter McKenzie, um, and this week we're coming at you with Scotty Eisen and Caleb Bell. What's going on, guys? What's up, Carter? Hey, hey, what's going on, man? Good to see you guys. Been too long. Has been too long. I'm glad you guys are here, um, joining us from all over the country at this point. Well, both sides of the country here. Uh, Scotty, you're over in California, and Caleb, you're in Colorado. So I appreciate you guys taking the time to jump on tonight. Absolutely. Thanks for thanks for having us. Yeah, we've got the whole whole country covered here tonight. <laughs> Yeah. And if not, I mean, shoot, Derek was on here a minute ago. We had the whole world covered. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No <laughs> kidding. Won't say exactly where he is, but he's not close to Georgia. That's for sure. HLE worldwide. That's right, man. Taking <laughs> over. Inter- we're international, buddy. International. Well, yeah, I appreciate you guys coming on. Um, I know y'all are far more experienced with all things Western hunting, um, and I'm just uh, obsessed um, and dipping my toes into the process. But, uh, on today's episode, we're going to be talking about kind of after the hunt, after the kill, um, kind of the now what scenarios. Um, but before we jump into all this content we got planned out for you guys, uh, Scotty, why don't you kind of introduce yourself, give us a little bit of your background and kind of your hunting background and where you're at. Absolutely. Um, well, I'm out here in California. Um, I've been, I've been hunting for, uh, since I was probably 16 years old, uh, spent some time in the Marine Corps. And, uh, when I got out, I really focused on trying to, uh, try to get back into it, you know, and, um, and learn where to hunt how to hunt. Um, been really fortunate. I've got some family out there in Caleb's neck of the woods out in Colorado that had some, some awesome opportunities to hunt out there in Colorado. Um, uh, it's pretty cool to consider myself a Western hunter. You know, I hunt out here, blacktail hunt the Hills out in, uh, out here in California and, um, do a lot of waterfowl hunting out in the refuges, uh, here as well. So, um, people, you know, people have their opinions about California, but believe it or not, there's a lot of outdoorsmen out here and, um, we kind of fly under the radar to an extent, but, um, there, California has a lot to offer regarding hunting and, um, just overall being out outdoors, you know, um, from pigs to quail to ducks and deer and elk. I mean, it, it's all out here. Um, it may not be the easiest to get into, um, or it may not be easy to find a place to hunt, but, um, the state does actually pretty well and providing some state land to go hunt on. So, um, but, uh, that's me in a nutshell. Um, married, got three kids and, um, and happy to be here on the podcast. Happy to be part of the HLE team now for sure. Yeah, man. Well, we're lucky to have you. Um, and you know, absolutely in love with your, uh, Instagram page and we'll give that a shout out later, but, and we'll talk about your obsession with skulls, all things skulls later on as well. But yeah, I feel like people forget how big California is. 
and everybody's idea boils it down to like one small area of the state. And I don't know if this is a best kept secret or if I'm breaking any rules by giving it away, but I've heard that there's some fantastic deer hunting that's slept on, um, in that state. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of good deer hunting. I mean, there's blacktail. I mean, you can almost have your choice. You know, there's mule deer out here. Like I said, there's elk and, um, I'm not a huge fisherman, but I know that the fisheries out here are just world-class. I mean, um, the sturgeon fishery out here is probably one of the best in, in the country for sure, if not in the world. Um, but the guys out there are fishing in the bay, catching halibut and salmon. And I mean, if you're an outdoorsman and you're avid about it, um, there's plenty to do out here in California for sure. And, uh, and there's plenty, plenty, plenty of, uh, plenty of things to chase for sure. That's outstanding. And Caleb coming at us from Colorado, man, you want to introduce yourself? Give us a little background about you. Yeah, definitely. It, uh, it's been a fun ride here in Colorado, born and raised on the Western slope over towards the Grand Junction area. Anybody that really knows or anything about Western hunting is probably familiar with that side of the world when it comes to elk. Uh, we've got the book cliffs. We've got phenomenal mule deer ground over there. The G unit, as everybody calls it, G basin, 55, all that stuff for giant muleys. And then just giant elk all the way around that Utah migration route. So it's kind of nice growing up where I was at. I was right in the middle of all of it. Then uh, I actually went the opposite route. I grew up on a cattle farm. I've been hunting my entire life and growing up on that cattle farm, I looked at my dad when I graduated high school and was like, hey, love you, but I'm moving to California for four years and playing golf. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I actually moved straight up into San Diego right out of right out of high school and finished up college over there and was in your neck of the woods, Scott, for a while. And I honestly had no idea there was any good outdoor recreational anything in California other than a beach, margaritas, and really pretty women. So uh, you could definitely say my college career out there was pretty fun. And uh, <laughs> fi- finally made it back over here into Colorado around that 2012 time frame and really re- uh, redefined who I was as a hunter at that point. Really got back into it, dove into everything that I could outdoors, started photography. And then here recently, um, I joined on a uh, joined on a crew called Incline Productions. And we've been really heavy into filming and producing outdoor television shows and hunting shows. Uh, we won the Full Draw Film Tour in 2020, which is really cool. And now it's just, it's an everyday part of my life when I'm not working. Shoot, I'm sitting right here looking over 180 acres, just waiting for the does to walk through, waiting to see what the head count is right now. It's a, it's a good life here in Colorado. Can't, uh, can't complain and, and definitely love it. Glad to be here and glad to be a part of the team too. Yeah, I love that, man. And I think a lot of people can, a lot of our listeners can kind of emulate with those experiences and those feelings, uh, regardless of where you are across the country. I mean, one of my favorite things in the evening is to take my almost two-year-old daughter into the back 40 and see see who's walking back there around the pond, see if there's some does or if there's some turkeys or you know, we'll have a black bear every once in a while. Um, and it's just, that's part of it. That's part of life. That's part of the routine. And it's, it's the greatest thing in the world, man. The only thing that makes me mad is that I'm too cheap to have a webcam on my work computer. And uh, you guys can't just kind of see the nice beautiful <laughs> sunset over the Rockies with me, but I yeah, guess we'll you'll have to miss to... out on my pretty face this time. <laughs> we'll have to upgrade you, man. Or Zencaster will have to upgrade one or the other. You know, I've got every iPhone and Apple product known to mankind, but my work laptop doesn't have crap. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Before we kind of jump into, you know, after the hunt, I think it'd be really cool to talk about 
uh, with each of you respectively, kind of uh, who who your you, know, you talked briefly about your journeys into hunting and and how you grew up doing it. Um, who your kind of mentors were and kind of who kind of pushed you um, to become that outdoorsman um, and maybe who or what shaped you to have this obsession, this passion um, that we have for the outdoors. So. Absolutely, Carter. Um, you know, with hunting and and being in the outdoors, you know, you really you really do need that mentor. Um, it, it would be just so difficult to just do it on your own and people do it all the time. But, um, and for, for those of us that are lucky enough to maybe have that one family member, a couple family members that are willing to teach you, um, those, those lifelong lessons, it's just, it's just so valuable for me personally. Um, you know, after high school, I moved to Colorado. I, uh, I worked, um, as an electrician with my uncle and, um, I have, I had a number of family at the time that lived out there, but, um, my, my two uncles and my grandfather were just monumental and, and kind of teaching me the ways, um, and, uh, and, and those, those life lessons that they taught, some of them were really hard. I'll be honest with you. Some of them, you know, hunting camp, it, at least for me, from my experiences have not, it, it hasn't always been easy. Um, it's not always, it's not always fun, but, uh, but man, it's, it's certainly, uh, helped me become the man I am today for sure. Um, and, uh, so my grandfathers and my uncle, they grew up hunting. Um, they're my mom's side of the family and, and they really took me under their wing. When I was even younger, I would go out, fly out. The California kid flew out to Cal- Colorado and worked on my grandpa's, uh, cattle ranch and, um, played cowboy for a couple of weeks every year. And so that, that kind of started my, uh, this draw towards, you know, kind of being out and, and, and doing hard things. And cause that was hard work in those summers coming out there and, and doing that and getting stepped on. And, and then, um, and then when I finally had the opportunity to get out and go hunting, um, I was hooked. And, uh, you know, I remember my grandpa teaching me how to walk, you know, it's like, you literally have to be taught how to walk through the woods. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, a couple of years ago, I found myself teaching my own son, the same, same exact lessons, you know, and, uh, and, you know, from, you know, we're going to talk about tonight, but, you know, different aspects of, uh, of the entire hunt from the beginning to the end, you know, somebody has got to teach you how to, how to get an animal, you know, you can't just go do it and you're going to do something wrong. You need somebody to literally hold your hand. I don't care how old you are. Uh, you need somebody to hold your hand and walk you through it. And, um, you know, and I love doing that. I love that somebody spent time, uh, teaching me the ropes. And when I do have the, uh, opportunity to teach other people, you know, my sisters come out, my, my, uh, my, both my brothers hunt. My youngest brother is his first year last year. Uh, he shot a really nice buck, uh, nice mule deer. And, you know, I found myself kind of walking them through the ones and twos on how, how and why we do these things. And, um, you know, uh, so luckily enough, I had some family members that were, that invested a lot of time and energy in me. And, um, just because of who I am, I, I'm, I'm happy to do the same thing for other people. And, and I've had opportunities to hunt with people out here in California and, uh, and they do things differently. You know, uh, you can hunt with a different crew and they do things a little bit different here and there. And, and that's okay. There's, you know, there's more than one way to skin a cat. You know, there's, there's plenty of, um, there's a lot of lessons out there and a lot of experience these old timers have out in the field. And, um, it's important to sometimes just 
listen and um, and try to soak it all in because uh, believe it or not, one day you're going to be that old timer and uh, there, there's going to be these young kids looking up at you and you're going to want to know what to do. And um, but I look forward to that day and uh, I relish in the opportunities to be able to just um, to spend time and to learn from other people. So, um, yeah, those were my mentors and I, I owe them everything for sure. I, I love them to death. And um, without them, uh, man, I wouldn't have near the uh, the experiences I've had because. 90% of my, the most amazing outdoor experiences I've had have been with, with family and with them. That's, that's perfect, man. It, you know, we always talk about where we came from or how we came there or how we got to where we are now. And very rarely do you ever just sit back and think about that first hunting camp, right? The, the one with all your granddads, your uncles, your dad, shoot, even grandma, they're cooking, just cussing at everybody, yelling at everybody because nobody's getting around the camp to get eaten. And it's a, uh, it's funny because we've all had those mentors, somebody that's shaped it, somebody that's developed us into who we are. And, and very rarely do you ever sit back and think about it. And uh, I've actually got a tradition at hunting camp and it, it all ties into this because to be honest with you, it, I was never much of a conservationist as a younger kid. I was a hunter. I was out there I was shooting an animal and throwing it on my back, going home and eating it. I never really put time and effort into the, the thought process behind all of it when I was younger. And it wasn't until my dad's best friend passed away from a heart attack at 55. And I thought about the very first deer camp that I sat around with that gentleman. And I was six years old, snow and blizzard with two 300 pound guys and a camper the size of, I don't know, like a scamper camper. You know, we were pretty much cuddling in there. And uh, we're sitting there around the campfire and they're doing shots of hot damn. And it's the nastiest cinnamon whiskey around, right? Here I am six years old. And they're talking about doing tradition and taking a shot of hot damn. And uh, I looked at my dad. I was like, Dad, can, can I have a shot of hot damn? Like, I want to try some of this tradition. And he handed it to me, and I took a big old swallow of it, and I turned yellow at the gills and thought I was going to throw up. And 10 minutes later, I looked at him. and I was like, Dad, I think I need some more tradition. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's funny because you don't think about those moments sometimes. And those are the people that have shaped us who we are now. And uh, I actually have a tradition now. I carry a flask of hot, uh, hot damn with me everywhere on the mountain. And I find that one spot and I sit down and I take a shot to everybody who's ever hunted with me, the people who couldn't be there, the people that I wish were there, the people who've influenced me and the people who've kind of helped me get to where I am now. It's a, uh, it's always kind of nice to sit back and think about that until you're drinking hundred proof hot damn. <laughs> yeah. I love that, man. And that's why I kind of doing these, a platform like this is so cool because you get to take a second and reflect and kind of unpack. And I think what we're talking about is going to resonate with a lot of people. Um, it's, it's important. It's important to take a step back and, and appreciate that kind of stuff. You know, it's far more than just getting an animal down on the ground. Um, it's everything that leads up to it before and everything that comes after and taking a second to appreciate every aspect of that can be, you can get caught up in it and it can be a bit of a chore, you know, you have to, you have to be intentional. You have to set your intentions and, and take a step and, and, uh, think about it, break it, process it, break it all down. Absolutely. Talk about. Yeah. yeah. You just got to take that time and really appreciate what you're doing and where you're at and where you've come from. You know, a, a big year for me on that. And I posted that on that, uh, that epiphany hunt tidal waves in the Rockies. That was a huge hunt for me. You know, that was, 
absolutely grueling coming off of what I thought was the worst year of my life. I actually wrote about that in our bio, so that's kind of funny. But it takes one hunt to change your life forever. And then you start thinking about what it is you're really doing and why you're doing it. And Scott, to touch right back to where you were, it's no longer about just hunting for ourselves anymore. It's about influencing that next generation, right? A cultural change, living on beyond what we're doing and how we're doing it and how we can continue this lifestyle for years to come, for decades to come, centuries if we will. Because the stuff that we're learning and doing right now, we have the ability to influence a generation that could well, live another 500 years. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and from everything I'm hearing, the next, you know, that's what hunting is lacking right now. You know, the next generation, it just seems like the hunting community is getting somewhat smaller and smaller. Um, but, uh, the next generation needs that, you know, deeply, especially considering a lot of the, um, you know, the, the things that they've gone through, um, over the past couple of years and everything, you know, kids just need to be outside. You know, that's my perspective and, and to, to be able to teach the next generation how, you know, something that's been very valuable to me. Um, it's, it's super important, you know, and, um, and, and it's really what it's all about. You know, it's about that camaraderie and it's about, um, being together and, and doing something for the common good for sure. Um, but on your note, um, about, taking shots. I, my, we, we shot a, a buck one time and my grandpa went up and, and he must've been up at the cabin, but he came down to meet us. But the only thing he had in his, in his, uh, side by side was a, was a handle of old crow. And, uh, and, but you know, it didn't even matter. You know, I posted a picture on it and, and, uh, I think it, it might've got reposted or something. And I went, I was reading some of the comments and everybody hated the fact that we were drinking old crow, but, um, I didn't even, I, you know, I didn't even think twice about it. You know, it was just about all of us standing in a circle over a big dead buck, you know, uh, something that we hunted and hunted hard for, and we had an amazing story to back it up. And it, it, you know, so now every time I think of or see old crow, that's what, I, that's what I envisioned, you know, and it's funny how those little, uh, the little minute, um, aspects of that whole overall experience end up sticking with you. So I love how you made yours a tradition though, right on. I'm still evaluating that tradition. You know, I mean, it's been going on for a long time, but I'm telling you, when you throw back a shot, a hundred proof hot dam after killing an animal or something like that, or you're at 12,000 feet here in Colorado, you really rethink why you made that. decision. <laughs> <laughs> but you're going to continue to do it regardless. <laughs> oh yeah. I'll carry two bottles. <laughs> well, I love it, man. I love talking about these traditions and kind of once you get one on the ground and that's a perfect transition into kind of our topic, what we're going to be unpacking tonight. So the now what, right now, what do you do? Well, after you have an animal on the ground, let's break down a little bit of the, uh, the preparation and the, the care for the animal and kind of, uh, bounce each other's processes and ideas off and, and flesh this out a little bit, guys. Absolutely. Um, Man, once you get something on the ground, you know, that's when the real work begins. You know, we, we, we hit on it a little earlier, but, uh, you know, it's just, uh, important that at that point, uh, I'll say it again, but take your time, you know, put a plan together. Every hunt is different, whether you're hunting on a ranch or you're way up in the, um, in the, in the back country, um, you really need to s slow things down. Cause at that point, you know, I can guarantee you your adrenaline's rushing 
you're super stoked, super excited about what, what just happened, especially, you know, you got something on the ground, take your time, take some good pictures. Um, I've been on hunts just again, I'm a, I'm a, you guys are going to find out. I talk about my grandpa a lot, but, uh, he's, he's been doing this for so long that, and here I am, I want to take pictures. I want to, you know, try to stage the deer, make him look like he's sitting and, and do what I want to do. And he's, Oh, hurry up, hurry up. And he's just pushing you through the whole process. Cause he just wants to get up there and eat breakfast. You know, he doesn't want you shooting bucks at night either because it might ruin dinner, you know, but, uh, it, but, but for, for us, you know, we're like, Oh, come on. We just want to relish in the moment a little bit. So, but do that, take advantage of that. Um, again, it's what you've, what you've worked so hard for and what you've been preparing for, for so long. A lot of people are driving out of state, um, uh, or just investing a lot of time and money in the whole, in the whole, uh, experience. So take your time, take some pictures, but, um, and put, put together a plan. We hit on a, a little bit on the uh, tips episode, but, um, put a plan together and then, um, assess it. Um, and, and then, and then get to work, you know, that's really, that's really, uh, where it starts, but it's really literally only the beginning. And that's just exactly it. Right. We spend so much time thinking about this stuff in the off season. I don't know about you guys, but probably five months before hunting season, actually right now, honestly, I think I've got two different XO packs on my table behind me, my bow and everything already laid out. And I'm like already preparing for the Colorado archery seasons. And it's only April. (laughs) (laughs) Spend so much time though, on the backside of this, planning out everything, getting all our gear ready and really diving into the access of our hunt and what's going to happen. And I think a lot of people fail to plan on being successful. Just killing an animal, that's that's the start, right? We don't go into this process planning to fail, but everybody fails to plan after they kill. What are you going to do? How are you going to do it? How are you going to pack out? Are you mentally prepared? Do you have the gear? Do you have the knives? What is your plan going into this? And I know how it works. We all do. Plans go to shit in a handbasket really quick. But part of a plan is better than no plan. Because at the end of the day, this animal gave its life for us. The most thing that we can do, the best thing that we can do for this animal is get as much meat out as possible in a timely manner and feed ourselves and our family for time to come. So it's all about planning for that. Yeah, and there's a couple different options um, as far as when you get that animal down, right? And I've uh, done many of these uh, on the trips I've taken. Um, and I, I'll speak as a non-resident, someone coming, you know, uh, over a thousand miles to go hunt in these places like Wyoming and Colorado and Montana, um, and flying usually, uh, well, I only have flown. Um, so planning for after the kill, it's like of the utmost importance that's at the forefront of my mind. Um, because like you said, Caleb, you spend all this time. I mean, I'm on. If I'm not, I'm, I'm looking at maps every single day, like even, you know, even at, d- during my lunch break at work, like that's what I'm doing. And I'm thinking about what my backup plan is if I don't draw Montana deer this year. And like, I'm thinking about, okay, where, where are we staying? Where are we, are we camping? Where are we, where's the nearest, uh, are we, I need to know where the nearest taxidermist in case, you know, I come across that buck or I need to know where's, you know, where's a Walmart. I'm calling that Walmart to see if they have dry ice, but we can kind of unpack that gear a little more intensely, but it's, it's so important, especially if you're traveling, um, from far away. So I guess let's break down this first one. Um, and the taxidermist, do you want to touch on that, Caleb? 
Yeah, definitely. And I think Scott, you can jump in on this too. You've probably got, well, I mean, based on your skull collection and your uh, obsession with dead animals on the side of the road and potentially even skinny cats. Uh, <laughs> I think we can probably dive into that pretty good here. But again, it's all about that forward thinking process. I go into every hunt expecting to make a kill. Whether or not it's a trophy animal, I don't care, but I plan on it. So before I do anything, I always try to figure out a good taxidermist in the area. If I've got one that I work with locally, I go ahead and use him. But I try to get an understanding of what that taxidermist wants. Because when I get the animal down, the first portion of getting it prepared, in my opinion, is getting the taxidermy prepared and off in a timely manner. So that way your cake cuts are clean and you're not spending more money down the road. And then you can focus on the meat. Because that's the tiddly, that's the tiddly little tedious stuff, right? Your face capes, your wide Ys, uh, your cut lines on your back, your midline cuts. That stuff takes a little bit more time. So if you can get efficient at it and get a little bit of knowledge up front with your taxidermist, it's going to pay off in the long run. It'll save you an hour out in the field, and the next thing you know, you're just cutting up meat quicker. And I don't know if you guys have ever been this guy, but I've been the guy in the field trying to pull up a YouTube video how to, where do I start my, start my cut for my, for my cape? How do I, you know, is it too, I know it could be too far forward or where, where's that sweet spot trying to load, you know, in the, in the, I remember doing that with my antelope and finally being like, this is way over my head. I don't know how to do this. And then I had a hellacious pack out because I didn't know how to successfully quarter out this antelope and, I so desperately wanted it taxidermy because obviously we don't have them in Georgia. And I was like over the moon that I had finally killed one after getting my ass kicked. Um, so yeah, that preparation is really important. So you don't look like an idiot. Absolutely. And, and I'll just go ahead and say it, but it's okay. It's okay to not know, you know, and, um, every, you know, every hunt is different. And, um, you know, if you, if you might not be in a position where you can, you know, make cape cuts and, and, and pack everything out perfectly, you know, uh, depending on where you're at, you can, you can make your cape cuts, whether or not it's a trophy buck or you plan or intend on, on doing a wall mount, um, or a full mount. Uh, but taxidermists will take that and, um, taxidermists will take, um, those capes and, you know, maybe give you a couple bucks in return for it. Um, but, uh, it's okay to not know. And, 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 you know, for me personally, I love the European mount so much that, uh, that's one less thing I have to worry about is, is, is making those cuts. And I'm usually coming from out of state anyway, but, um, and so I'll just kind of zip right through that stuff. But, um, but if you're in a position where, you know, maybe it's your first buck, maybe it's, maybe it's a, it's a monster buck and you want to want him hanging on your wall. Um, hopefully you have service so you can watch that YouTube video and, and, uh, and, and gain some, some quick knowledge on, on the how to, or maybe we can help you out tonight a little bit, but, um, really it just comes with time, comes with experience. And, um, and if you have the ability to do it, then do it. Um, but again, it's okay to not know, cause we're all learning out here. Every, every hunt is different. And, um, and, and you, you learn something new on every hunt. And so, um, just cause you don't know how to cape something out, uh, your day is not over. You have, you have far larger things to, to consider too at times. I definitely couldn't agree more on that, right? If you can't cape something out or you don't have the time or you're just not comfortable with it, the most important thing, we talk about this time and time again, that meat is to sustain you and your family. This animal gave its life for you. And you'll hear me constantly say this as a conservation or as a conservationist. That animal gave its life for you and your family. That is the most important thing. 
I don't care how bad your cape cut looks. I don't care about any of that. It's making sure that you are a good conservationist at the end of the day. That's what separates us from being other individuals that are crappy hunters, the trespassers, the poachers. That's what sets us apart from being that next generation. And diving right into that, I mean, that's where I spend a lot of time getting a little bit up front too. Uh, I think a lot of people don't understand the butcher side of it. So let's say you're out in the field and you don't have the time to necessarily butcher an animal like I would. I normally butcher everything myself. I'm field to table kind of guy. The only time I won't is if we're doing a lot of compound hunts, you know, hunt elk this week, deer next week, et cetera, et cetera. I drop it off at a butcher just to take care of the meat. Guys, things to pay attention when you're doing that. Uh, butchers charge you by the hanging weight. If you have time and you have the ability to, debone it before you bring it in. Keep your meat a little bit separate. Keep your back strap separate. Keep your hind separate. Keep your front separate, but debone it. A butcher will charge anywhere from $1.25 to like $1.50 a pound, depending on weight. And on an elk, shoot, you're talking 60, 120, 150 pounds of meat or, or a bone that you're paying for and you're not getting anything out of. So it takes a little bit of time up front and learning how to do that. And it, uh, it'll definitely save you some money in the long run though. Yeah, hundred percent. And knowing exactly where those butchers and where those taxidermists are, if you're going to go that route is really important beforehand. Uh, I called every butcher and taxidermist and asked for price sheets and kind of how their process worked and what they wanted um, on all of my hunts. Um, in Wyoming thus far. And so I, I have that address <laughs> written down. I know where I'm going after we kill something. Cause you know, time is of, of the essence for, you know, if you're on a multi or just a couple day hunt as a non-resident, you know, time is important, especially if there's other guys who need to fill tags, um, getting an animal down can slow down the process of filling other tags for sure. Um, so being familiar with that process and not being surprised by, the price tag that is accrued um, if you go that route, if you're not able to, you know, have a proper setup in a barn or do it, you know, like I would here at the house um, and have plenty of time and not, not pressed for time in, in that, in that regard is really, really important. For sure. You know, we're, Man, Caleb, gosh, hunting deer one week and elk the next week. Gosh, talk about problems, man. Holy moly. <laughs> I wish I had problems like that. Uh, but um, yeah, when you find, when you, you, you got to talk to the butchers, find out what you, what, what, what they're wanting. And uh, if, if you kind of develop a relationship with your butcher, if, if you tend to go back to them, I know for me personally, um, I haven't found a good butcher that I really liked, you know, I mean, maybe for like specialty stuff, you know, you can, I, I, I'm the same kind of, you know, I, I do all my butchering too, just because I haven't been super happy with the steaks, you know, and I can cut them down uh, to the size and fit for my family and, and how I want them and clean them up how I want them. I always found that when I take things to butchers, you know, it's, it's just not the way I would do it, you know? And so, um, uh, so I like butchering them on my own, but I do save a lot of the scrap meat and some of the shoulders and stuff. And, and we'll take them in to the two egg butcher and have them make some, you know, some snack sticks or, or some, uh, summer sausage, which is always good. But, um, um, it's good to have some options. You know, if you, if you can't do it on your own, talk to some butchers, find out what their costs are, find out what they're looking for. Um, and, um, but it is good to, to know, you know, which butcher options you have, um, you know, around you. And if you're traveling, if you're flying, you know, it's even more important because it, it's kind of hard to, 
expect you to, to fly home with, you know, quarters, you know, <laughs> in a bag, Not, you know, it, sometimes they'll even ship it back out to you, won't they? Yeah, sometimes they will. And TSA looks at you really weird when you have a stone glacier on your back with an entire hind quarter on it. <laughs> dude, so don't, I don't do. recommend that. <laughs> <laughs> they do. Yeah. So I guess this kind of leads us into the gear that you need if you are going to be breaking it down in the field. And once again, I'll talk from someone who's flying destination hunting here. Um, one, a tarp is the most important piece of gear that I've found that you can bring. If you do not, if you're not set up with, uh, some kind of pulley system or a gambrel or like tables or like all the awesome butchering setup I have here at the house for deer here in Georgia, uh, a tarp is as, as good as it's going to get. We use tarps and the tops of coolers to cut everything up. Um, and you need to debone kind of like you were talking about Caleb with the, uh, with the butcher and the hanging weight, same thing when you're flying, right? The weight in the cooler matters exponentially because that shit gets expensive really quick. So you need to debone that, uh, everything in, in camp or in the field, um, before you stuff it into your soft side of cooler, soft side of cooler is the second most important piece of gear if you're flying. And they do look at you weird in the Gillette airport this past trip. They made me unpack all of my meat in the TSA security line, open it up, take it out of the contractor bag. And I was like, it's meat. And they're like, what's in here? I'm like, it's literally deer meat and made me pull everything out. After I had got this hard freeze on it, it was how stoked about it. I'd found the gas station with the dry ice on the way to the airport. And I was stoked. I was like, I did everything right. And then they made me take everything out and it thawed a little bit. But um, yeah, they do get Captain America was was running the TSA that time. He was taking his job very seriously. I'm actually surprised you had that issue in Gillette. Especially Gillette. I mean, that is like a backcountry yeah. Freaking sheep hugging little town. <laughs> I thought that place was like the Wild West. I was like, who is this guy? I think that's a great little comment too to run into the next side of this. And I, I'm a cheapskate when it comes to my my preparation at home because, well, you know, there's a lot of people out there that like to get rid of stuff. And guys, I think one of the, the best things that I've found over the years is I'll go to garage sales during the summer and I'll pick up a freezer or a uh, refrigerator freezer combo for like 50 bucks. And then I go to Home Depot and I buy some of those industrial roof pegs and I screw those suckers right into the top of that freezer and right into the top of that refrigerator. And then I take the, uh, the vegetable drawers and I pop the top off the vegetable drawers and I've got four of them all lined up together. They sit in my garage. I've got maybe 150 bucks invested and I can hang an entire elk during the heat of the fall in Colorado at 40 degrees inside of those with no problem for weeks and spent less than 150 bucks. Absolutely phenomenal. And anybody on a budget, it'll help you guys out in the long run. That's freaking awesome. That's an excellent pro tip right there. Cause if you can hang your own meat, I mean, that's, yeah, you, that's it. You don't need a butcher at all. You can do it all at your house and and save that money. And like you said, not be out uh, a ton of cash, which is really sweet. The only thing I want to make sure everybody understands, do not try to cut frozen solid meat with a brand new knife. I tried that on my mule deer two years ago, uh, just about cut my finger off. The only thing I had to sew it back together was a 10 gauge needle that I use on my horses. <laughs> oh my so gosh. I used a 10 gauge suture kit to sew my finger back on. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the only knife that's capable of uh, handling that kind of job, shameless plug here for Derek, is uh, Stand 2 Blade Company knife. So uh, go check him out on Instagram and check out his website. It's the only knife that can handle it. 
I might actually cut my finger all the way off if I was using his. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Those things are wicked sharp. Yeah, that's that's a really great tip. What about as far as um, do you two kind of want to piggyback off each other and talk about breaking down an elk like on a mountain, especially in an unfavorable elevation or pitch? Yeah. Yeah, we can definitely do that. You know, um, uh, we I, I've actually we've done that before. We we shot a bull and he ran off and fell into a crevice. It was almost like we turned the corner and we were in a mud Mars almost. And he had fallen down. He was upside down, flipped over. And uh, the, our footing was horrible. It was snowing, and and but it was also really wet and muddy. It was uh, it was ridiculous, really. I mean, um, but but we got it done. But we also had like five guys. We needed every everybody there um, to to get it done. Um, but uh, you know, step by step, um, you know it there's a lot to be done, you know? Um, and, um, for us, you know, we're always, uh, starting off on, on the back, you know, and every, again, everybody there, there may not be a right or wrong way. I see a lot of, um, uh, you know, watching YouTube videos and stuff. I always see how some of these other guys are doing it way out in the back country, you know, the gutless, uh, uh, gutting, you know, uh, quartering and everything. And, and that's something that I have not done yet. And it's something I really want to do and see done. Um, ours, ours has always been a little bit more rudimentary maybe, but, um, but, uh, I know Caleb has experience with it and, um, but it just seems like such a, uh, such a cleaner way to go about doing it once you, once you can do it. Um, and so, uh, again, more than one way to skin a cat, but, um, if you can learn something new, the gutless method that a lot of, uh, the pros are using, uh, it's definitely a, um, it'd probably be a really time-saving venture to learn how to do. Well, I think that's one of the keys to it, Scotty, is every animal dies in a different position, right? We're never going to be lucky and every animal is going to die on its side in a good pitch in a good spot in a good area. So every time you go into this, you have to be prepared and understand and assess the situation, right? Situational awareness. Is this elk on a 45 degree angle where it's gonna roll downhill and roll on top of me when I'm in the middle of this? Do I need to take the time to tie up legs? Uh, what's accessible, the hinds, the fronts, the backs? Where can I start? Because that's usually the hardest part. Where can I start? What can I do right now? And how can I prepare myself for what's next? That's usually the first four or five questions I ask myself especially uh, in a perfect scenario when I've got an elk just laying on its side and he's sitting there pretty. The first thing I like to start with, like we're talking about under taxidermy, cape cuts. I'll make a big midline cut all the way around his belly so I know right where I'm going. At that point in time, I'm done right there. I'll make the cut straight up his back, right into his wide Y, which is right at the base of his antlers, and then I can remove all the back straps. At that point, half my caping's already done. Back straps are out, and now, I can work on the hind quarters and the romps, the ribs, the inner loins and the gutless method if I want to go gutless and uh, really dive into getting that half of that elk broke out uh, or deer, any animal really at that point. But it's all about assessing that situation and what you're comfortable with too. Sometimes you might not be comfortable with starting on the back straps. Sometimes you might not be comfortable starting on the front shoulder and the front shoulder is really the easiest one in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, one of the, 
aspects to when you go to gutting for for me is get the animal you know use gravity to your advantage if you have the ability to do that um you know if you're if you're going to actually be gutting you know those guts kind of naturally want to come out um and as long once you start freeing them up there's you know a lot of different fluids and a lot of things going on but um if you can find a, a slight slope nothing crazy nothing where he's going to slide all the way down but a slight slope and, and allow uh, those fluids and allow the guts to kind of roll out once you do get them out. And it kind of allows you to get things out of the way once once you get everything opened up and you can start really di- diving into either quartering them out or, um, or, you know, hooking them up, getting ready to throw them in a truck even just like that. It could be, it, that could be your hunt. That could be your, your method, you know? Um, but um it, use gravity to your advantage and, um, and, and it helps keep the area a little bit cleaner too while you're working. Um, but there is nothing better than, you know, uh, depending on hunting season, if it's cold or not, man, if you're cold and it's, it, it, it's just such a blessing to get something on the ground. If you really need to warm your hands up though. Um, and you know, get in there, get your hands warmed up, uh, get some snow, clean your hands off when you're finished. Um, but, uh, you know, God put those animals there for a reason. Sometimes you need them when, when you need them for sure. <laughs> yeah. hundred percent, man. It can be like the star Wars empire strikes back, sticking, sticking your warm hands in there, especially when it's real, real cold. When I killed my mule deer two years ago, I had left my, I got so excited when I spotted him and put my stock on, I left my outer layer and I left one of my gloves and I left my beanie and I sat for like an hour waiting for this thing to stand up behind a sagebrush and I was just freezing. It started pouring snow. It was awful. It was a total amateur move. But for those, for those elk like that guys, definitely paracord in your bag at all times. Absolutely. Yeah, I, usually carry. I like the 550 cord. Sorry, Caleb, but uh, I like the 550 cord, you know, and, and with the cordage, you know, it goes without saying it's super important to know how to tie a couple knots. Um, you know, a simple bowling or, you know, with a couple half hitches, um, you know, it, it'll go a long way. If you just do it, watch a couple YouTube videos and learn how to tie a couple knots and do it effectively. Um, you know, last hunting season, I tied, I, I tied so many knots. It was unbelievable, but I was so, uh, I didn't even realize it because it was like second nature, you know, because I've been tying knots for so long, but, um, I, but to the people that don't know how to tie knots, they're like, Whoa, how'd you do that so quick? Or, you know, but it's so beneficial to, if you're going to be hanging quarters up in a tree or if you're going to be hooking, you know, tying up to drag or, or whatever, but definitely I, I enjoy the paracord and, and it's lightweight packs easy and, um, and it's easy to tie and, and, and you can reuse it too, of course. Yeah. And to touch on that too, with that 550 cord, um, you can never have too much of it. Not only does it help you when you're tying up an animal and tying something out of the way, it'll help you secure a stick to those antlers across your backpack. Uh, it'll help you secure more deer onto your pack. And the other thing that I've started to carry with me too are two mountain level type uh, carabiners because I hate tying knots and it never fails that I tie my knot so dang good that I can't get it off and then I get mad and I cut the knot off. So I've actually started carrying carabiners too just to kind of help make it a little bit faster for me. And then I'll use those carabiners to tie down other deer and stuff too. But I feel a little hippie-ish when I'm out there with them. But they've been pretty handy lately. 
That's good. You got to play to your strengths. And like you said, Scotty, it's too easy to get on YouTube and learn a couple knots, especially in this continuing education idea that is hunting, always trying to get better. Um, maybe not just from a physical point of view, but <laughs> mentally being able to tie some basic knots is really important. My wife grew up sailing in Canada and she can tie knots like crazy. And I just over tie knots and ruin them. And then you like you, Caleb, can't get them undone. So that's a really good tip. But yeah, so I guess right back to where we're talking about here, guys, it's, it's assessing, assessing that animal where it's laying in the field. You've got to take a minute and really identify what you're going to be able to do and work on first. Uh, Scott, I don't know where you're at when it comes to deer and elk, Carter, yourself, but I always like to start from behind. After I get my the majority of my cuts done, my cape cut, if I'm doing taxidermy, I like to start from the back straps and the hind. That's usually where all the weight's at, where it's harder to maneuver. Um, and if you do go gut, uh, if you are a gutter, that's where you're typically going to see the more fluid contamination on your meat. So I like to get the hinds out of there first, personally. And then that elk or that deer is a lot lighter and you can maneuver a lot easier. So I always focus on whichever side's laying up and easy. I'll take that first hind and I'll actually run that straight down the spine all the way to the tailbone. And at that point, you should be able to feel that hip socket. Uh, from there, I kind of cut through the meat, pay attention, follow the bone, really follow the bone as close as you can. Find that hip joint. You'll hit it when you see the synovial fluid just pop out. It'll just squirt out of there really well. And then I pop that hip socket and then I work my way into the pelvis bone. And then it starts to get careful, right? You've got to pay attention to uh, leaving proof of sex, making sure you don't punch gut sacs, making sure you don't punch the poop sack and squirt some in your mouth. There's, there's a lot of things you got to pay attention to at that point in time. So for me, I really like starting on the hinds. And then that's 90% of your work because they're so big and they're so heavy. You can usually get that out of the way in the fronts and the, the rib meat and the heart. And if you like call fat, for those of you people that like Steve Rinella, call fat is phenomenal. And I would suggest that you spend the time to dive in there and get the call fat out every time. And the first time you do it, take like a two pound chunk of backstrap, wrap that sucker in that, throw it on a blackstone griddle or something, and you are going to be in heaven. Um, but yeah, once you get those hinds out of the way, the majority of your meat processing is done. Front shoulders are easy. Uh, heart's easy, rib meat, rib rolls, all that stuff's pretty simple. So I try to focus on that high and get it out of the way first. Yeah, those are all great tips. Uh, did you guys ever have to take a bite of the liver after you shot your first uh, first meal deer or buck or anything like that? Not liver, but we did heart. We do heart in Georgia. I had to take a, a bite out of the heart. My family, we we always we always make the the first kill. It's it's always the liver. It's got to be the liver, right? The 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 dirtiest, nastiest bite, right? Um, but that's what we would do. But uh, it's just one of those fun things that make a make a, a tough process a little bit more fun for everybody else, of course. That's one of those memorable moments that you never forget. Absolutely. Yeah, and then you smear it in your kid's face when you finally have them harvest one. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah, that was that was a highlight of my last trip to Wyoming this this past October was buddy John came down and got to harvest his first, well, I'll just say kill instead of harvest. He got to kill his first deer, his first big game animal. Um and it was awesome. Killed a, a mule deer and it was awesome getting him to teach it how to how to gut it and then make him take a bite of the heart and wipe some blood on his face and it made the last 4 days of getting our ass kicked. It totally saved the trip. It was awesome. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, the majority of uh, of the hunts that we're on, I mean, we've done, we've absolutely done some pack out hunts where we've had to 
um, pack out. Um, a lot of times that would be, you know, maybe the hunting is a little bit slower on the ranch and we'd head out into the public land and hike in and, uh, and we've been successful doing that. And, you know, if you're in there, you gotta, you gotta get them out. Um, it's always amazed me and, and I've learned and, and maybe Caleb can hit on this a little bit, but, um, I've always, you know, watching, watching videos, seeing guys hike into the back country and they've got a full pack. I'm like, how are they going to get an animal out? You know, their pack is full already. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a big, uh, Kuyu guy. I like Kuyu for, for a lot of my hunting gear and stuff. And I was, uh, checking out their shop and, you know, and, and I learned something new is, you know, going, hitting on the game bags, you know, a lot of guys are using game bags and it's helping, um, you know, keep that bacteria out. Um, it helps the, uh, the meat to kind of set a little bit and it keeps all the flies and, and, you know, you can dirt, keep their meat clean. It's just super important. Um, but they're actually putting those meat bags in between their frame and their pack. Is that right, Caleb? Is that what, is that, uh, is that what you've, uh, been seeing out there? Yeah. So talking about packs, I mean, there's so many different packs out there and a good quality pack is one of those key essential parts of your gear, right? Forward planning and forward thinking. Every pack that I run has a meat shelf, which is basically a, a storage compartment or storage area between the bag itself and the frame that allows you to expand that bag out and then place a quarter in there. Uh, a lot of them too, you can detach your bag. So if I'm hunting by myself, and again, we're talking a little bit more here on the gear side. If I'm by myself, I'll actually leave my main compartment bag at the kill site and I'll pack meat and I'll leapfrog. Cause usually, you know, your main compartment bag might be 30 pounds. Like what's 30 pounds over your shoulder, throw a 120 pound elk quarter on your back, go a mile, drop it off in the shade, come back, grab another, go back, grab another. So I typically try to focus on that, but a lot of those packs nowadays, good quality pack has got a meat shelf built into it, which is just there to help you pack more. So don't get too caught up on everything you're bringing in the back country. Yeah. You got to pack it back out with you. But look for a pack that's going to kind of accommodate your needs. I run a, actually, I just picked up a XO4800. Yeah, K34800. And what really turned me on to this pack is their, their integrated meat shelf. I used to run Stone Glacier. I've ran, uh, well, primarily just Stone Glacier anymore. Uh, but over switching into this XO, the time and effort that they put into designing that meat shelf is critical in the backcountry. So I definitely pay attention to that if you're selecting packs. And like you were talking about, Scotty, uh, a big thing that people don't really realize or dive into is game bags. That is an essential part of your gear. Keeping your meat clean after your harvest and placing it in a game, in a game bag that's actually going to help speed up the uh, crusting phase, whether it's an antimicrobacterial game bag or a reusable game bag, is just going to give you more time to get back to camp and get that meat taken care of. I carry Kuyu bags too. I love them. Uh, that's actually what I use when I'm in the backcountry is I've got all my Kuyu game bags. I've got two bone out bags and four quarter bags. A little bit excessive. You can usually fit everything in there, but I carry those. Uh, I'll throw all my meat in there. And then when I get back to camp, I've actually got antimicrobacterial bags, which is just a little bit more of a bacteria fighting bag. It helps speed up that crossing or cresting process better. So I'll transfer everything out of my reusable game bags and throw them into the antimicrobacterial ones after I clean them again, and then make sure everything's kind of set up, aired out, good location in the shade or cool area. And it's just going to help keep that meat longer. But I think a, a big part of that is being prepared for that and that meat care and preparation from time of harvest 
to time of getting it back to your truck. Definitely focus on being clean, keeping the dirt off, and setting everything up so you can succeed in the process after. Yeah, clean is everything. Um, if you can get it back to the truck or camp or wherever you're going to be breaking down the animal relatively clean, you got to take the time, get you know excess hair, anything like that off, um, give it a good rinse if you can before packing it away um, as, as best as possible. Um, I know, Scott, you have some experience in some really, really hot situations where hanging that meat is going to be really important, like Caleb was talking about, and using air as your best friend, um, kind of building that crust. And then on the flip side, I've been lucky enough to hunt where it's been really, really cold and it's put uh, a hard freeze on that meat overnight, um, leaving it out, which is phenomenal if you're flying back home, uh, in a day or two. And that was, that was life changing. Um, but those are things you have to consider, uh, especially if you're coming from out of state, man, I'll keep saying it again, but, um, those are things you gotta, you gotta plan for. You need to put, if you're traveling, you need to put that freeze on it as soon as possible. Definitely. Definitely. And I know a lot of people are using dry ice and even myself, I need to kind of educate myself a little bit more on, on how guys are doing that. Um, we've, you know, we've gone through lots of cubes and bags of ice on a drive all the way from Colorado to California. And, um, uh, I do know one thing is if you're using dry ice, make sure it's not inside your compartment that you're driving in because, um, you know, my grandpa had kind of a scary experience. He didn't realize what was going on, but he had some dry ice in the back of his Jeep. Uh, it's enclosed and he started feeling really funny and, uh, sucking all the, all the oxygen out of the air. And he didn't even realize it he ended up in the emergency room. Um, uh, and it wasn't until he got out that he realized, oh my gosh, it's from the, from the dry ice. But, um, the dry ice can definitely help extend that, that, that freeze time. Yeah. That shit's no joke. I remember reading about that tip from Remy Warren, I think. And so you got to vent your cooler and then I left it in the truck overnight before we were flying out of Denver the next day. Uh, and I even, <laughs> I was so nervous. I like cracked the windows an inch overnight just to let everything vent out. So it wouldn't be an issue the next day. Um, but being knowing where you can get that dry ice is uh, is really important because that'll put a hard freeze on whatever you need it to, especially in those small soft shell coolers. Well, the other side of that too, dry ice can make up for a Yeti in a heartbeat. I see so many people spending hundreds and hundreds of dollars on coolers. I've still got five or six Walmart igloos that are 70 quart from 10 years ago, and I can keep ice in them for 12 days all day long. All it takes is a little bit of knowledge on the backside. I like to take my dry ice and I'll actually lay it in first and I'll lay a towel over the top of it and I'll try to keep at least five to 10 pounds in the bottom. Then I'll crack that vent and then I separate the towel with plastic and then I'll dump four or five pounds of ice on top of the dry ice. And I can usually keep ice for 10 to 12 days, even in a cheap cooler. Yep. Absolutely. We always pick up, I, I, I run those cheap Ozark soft sided coolers from Walmart. Um, they are cheap, they are inexpensive, and everybody knows how out of control coolers can get price-wise. Um, and yeah, it's just like not always necessary to have <laughs> the highest-end cooler. And just make sure you guys are paying attention. If you are throwing meat in a cooler, really, really pay attention to that ice melt. You do not want that meat sitting in a cooler in water. You need to make sure that it stays dry and you keep it drained and really pay attention to your ice melt. You will spoil meat 
no matter how much time you spend out there packing it out and cleaning it and doing everything right, you will ruin meat if it is soaking wet and soggy for days. Have to have to keep that flushed out, especially if you're flying. Uh, airlines, if they see one drop of blood, one drip at all, they will throw it all out. Done. Gone. Gone forever. Um, so managing that ice melt is really, really important. Um, so what I do now is I bring really thick contractor bags after I bone out my meat, it goes into my butcher paper and then gallon size freezer bags. Um, and then that goes into the contractor bag and then the contractor bag goes into the soft sided cooler. Cause I'm not playing any game. I know it's not all about the money, but I don't want to fly out there, shoot an animal, and then have that taken away. That would just crush my heart. That would be <laughs> the worst thing in the world. Yeah, you got to keep got to keep your meat dry and uh, for the trip home. Um, but again, I, I'm just going to hit on you know if you find yourself out in the backcountry, you're doing you're taking all these tips and you're doing everything you know how to do. Um, you know, part of the after the hunt you know, a huge part of it is the actual pack out, you know, um, you, you've got to physically prepare yourself for that. Um, for anybody who's not done a legitimate pack out of an elk, I mean, it is, it's tough. And, um, you know, it takes, it takes some multiple men to get a full bull out of, out of the backcountry. Um, and, um, you know, I've seen guys throwing up, I, you know, I've seen guys not think they can make it back. Um, but you know, it's one of those tedious tasks that, um, will test you and, you know, you just got to refer back to, you know, all the work that you put into it. Um, you know, a lot of it's psychological cause you know, it's just one foot in front of the other, right. Uh, keep your head down, um, and, and keep going. But, um, uh, you know, you put, you keep it in, all in perspective, um, why you're there, you know, and, and the life that this animal is sacrificing for you, you know, you owe it to, to him or to her, whether it's a cow or, 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 or a doe or whatever it is, you know, you owe it to that animal to, to get them out, handle them properly, handle their meat properly, handle the antlers, right. Um, and get them down into the truck or get them home, uh, safely, you know, and, um, Although it's a huge task, uh, the feeling you get when you're done, uh, is, is one of the best feelings in the world. Uh, you know, uh, shooting an animal, you know, your adrenaline's pumping, you, you, you know, you love every moment of it, but, um, to, to be able to get everything down and out, um, you know, it's such a good feeling when, once that truck comes into sight and you know, you know, there's, there's a cold beer down there waiting for me cause you know, you earned it that day. Um, and, uh, and then most of the time, you know, and again, unless you're doing something solo, uh, you know, you're spending that, that time with, with people you love or people you, you know, you really enjoy being around. So, um, you know, kind of relish in that moment, but prepare yourself because it, it, it there are going to be some, some, some tough Hills in front of you. Yeah. Those tough Hills in the, in the truck at the bottom of the Hill the, with the beer cooler is a good way to know you earned it, man. That's awesome. But uh, yeah, boys, we're coming up on an hour here, um, and clearly we have a ton more to unpack, so I think we can safely call this part one. Um, we're going to have to jump back on here for part two and, and flesh this out a little more. Um, but do you guys want to give us any uh, closing thoughts? Caleb, do you want to hit us with some clo closing thoughts before we roll out of here? Uh, yeah, definitely. I want to hit you with something, and it's more of a segue here and probably a little bit too prolonged, but I just I love talking about packouts. 
right? They are the mental challenge and the game changer. And Scott, I'm sure you've got some, Carter. Every one of us has got a pack out story. And I got to tell this one because it just makes me laugh every time. It really makes me question my life sometimes. Uh, 2012, I had my first rotator cuff surgery after blowing out my labrum. And I decided I was going to go elk hunting two weeks later. Like, here we go. Game time. Let's do it. So I grab my rifle and I'm eight miles back in there and I shoot a little raghorn three point in a sling. <laughs> Spent the next two days packing an elk out by myself, eight miles deep in a sling. Talk about not being prepared. <laughs> <laughs> the desire was there, but the preparation, not so much. Yeah, I definitely failed the plan on that one. <laughs> well, I love that, man. What about you, Scott? You got any closing thoughts for us? Um, you know, uh, I, my closing thoughts are take your time and learn from other people as much as you can. Uh, it's okay. Nobody knows everything and, um, every hunt is different. So take your time, um, and, and try to soak up as much of that information as you can from your buddies, from your family, from whoever you're hunting with, watch some YouTube videos, learn to tie some knots, prepare yourself for the best you can. But the reality is, is once you get something down on the ground, um, you know, anything can happen. Things change and you got to be, uh, you got to be versatile, Semper Gumby, you know, and, uh, and be prepared for the ups and downs because nothing ever goes perfectly planned. So be flexible and uh, be ready to put in some work. Yeah, hundred percent, man. Caleb, you want to hit us with any sage wisdom before we roll out of here? You know, Scott, I don't know if I could say it any better, right? At the end of the day, we spend so much time doing everything that we do, whether it's work, with our families, and we very rarely sit in that moment. We talked about it already. Take the time to sit back and relive what you just accomplished. It is something that nobody else in this world will ever understand. Unless you're a true conservationist or an outdoorsman or a hunter or a fitness advocate, you will never truly understand what it is like to challenge yourself against a wild animal. Take the time, spend the moment, live it, love it, and then sweat your ass off and pack out an elk. 100%. That's perfect, man. I think that's a perfect way to end this. Um, and clearly we have way more to unpack in this next episode. But uh, Scotty, where can people find you on Instagram if they want to check out all these cool Euro mounts that you do? Yeah, Carter, uh, you can find me on Instagram, uh, the Skullkeeper, and uh couple underscores mixed in there you'll find me uh especially if you're following carter and this all the podcast you'll find me for sure um i got post a bunch of my hunting videos and some reels and um and obviously i like to do european mounts and uh try to be creative with those as much as possible but uh yeah that's where you'll find me yeah i love your page i want to put the underscores in the right in the right spot here so it's the underscore skull underscore keeper if you're not following scotty you're making a huge mistake so go punch that follow button and caleb where can people find you man uh caleb bell four it's an easy one it's a uh, it's not hard to find at all i try to post on there as much as i can but man it's uh it gets a little difficult trying to post about everything and make everybody else happy when it comes to that stuff but do yeah. make sure if you guys are sending scotty any sorts of dms that they're all pictures of the animal that's been on the road for at least eight months <laughs> like leather around its head that he's ready to pick up, do a little bit of work and make a really badass Euro mount because I want to see that process. Yeah, for sure. Just give me the coordinates. I'll go pick him up. For sure. yeah, he'll drop everything he's doing to go pick it up. <laughs> Especially if it's a doe. 
<laughs> for sure, man. Absolutely. Yeah, everybody go give uh, Caleb and Scotty a follow. I um, also want to drop a shameless plug for uh, the Hot Lift Eat website, thehotlifteat.com or hotlifteat.com. Um, Caleb just wrote a phenomenal article about uh, an impactful hunt of his um, called Tidal Waves in the Rockies. Everybody should go check that out. Um, now that we got the blog rolling full tilt, we got some fantastic articles coming out from uh, these team members here over at Hot Lift Eat. But once again, as always, we appreciate the hell out of you guys, listeners. Um, we will talk to you guys next week.